Well, welcome again to Door Creek Online. It's good that you've joined us from wherever you are. Great to be together today. Imagine this, not too hard to imagine, university. It's a uh, comparative religion course. The prof on the very first day introduces the class with these words that we'll be examining the history, the beliefs of the major religious movements of the world. We're going to assume that each of the founders of the religions were all in their various ways expressing similar and universal moral and spiritual concepts. Therefore, here's the zinger, therefore, we will assume that they are equal, equal in authority, equal in revelational validity, big word for the truth claims that they make. In other words, Jesus and Buddha and Confucius and Muhammad and all the rest, they're, they're all equal in their truth claims and in their bearing and authority on a person's life. So do you agree with that? Do you believe that? That Jesus is just like one of the many others? Or is he unique in any way? What's your take on Jesus. The week's message here is, is Jesus greater? Is Jesus greater? And uh, if you got a Bible, we're actually going to be in John's Gospel chapter 3. And where we've been in chapter 3 is Jesus has met up with a guy named Nicodemus who maybe wasn't sure exactly who Jesus was. Maybe he was just like a really good teacher and a prophet like in the Old Testament who could do these amazing things. And maybe he wasn't as convinced as his colleagues on the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court. Maybe he wasn't as convinced as the other Pharisees who were sure Jesus wasn't the Messiah. He wanted to know more. And today now we jumped into the back half of John chapter 3. And what we're going to see here is three key questions. Is Jesus greater? The second question is, why is Jesus greater? And then kind of a surprising twist to that, if you assume maybe the answer to that second question is, how does Jesus become greater, like in a person's life? So you're in John's gospel, you got it opened up. If you like taking message notes, you've got those in front of you. DoorCreek.info, you can get them through there on the website. Verse 22, John chapter 3. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because there was plenty of water, and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument, a debate developed between some of John's disciples. This would be John the Baptist, not the writer of this gospel, John, but John the Baptist. And a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he's baptizing and everyone is going to him. Now, here's the setting. We've moved from Jerusalem. Let's go to the map. Yeah, there we go. We've moved from Jerusalem where Jesus has just celebrated Passover. So right here 
on the northwest end of the Dead Sea. And it says that Jesus and his disciples have gone up into the Judean countryside. So here's Judea right here. He's up outside in the foothills of Judea. Jesus is going to be heading up to Capernaum, up north into Galilee, where it's typically his headquarters. Most of his ministry happens up there. John the Baptist, though, is in a place called Anon, near Salim. So he's on the other side of the Jordan River. He's on the west side. He had been down on the east side. And he's baptizing people. And Jesus, at the same time, is teaching. And we know from chapter 4, verse 1, that his disciples are the ones who are doing the baptizing. So that's the context. That's the setting. And the context is there's this, like, argument. There's this debate going on between some of John's disciples and this Jewish man over ceremonial washing. We have no idea from the text what they were arguing about. But we do know that somehow that argument over ceremonial washing and the waters of purification somehow connected to the waters of baptism, somehow connected to Jesus, so that we all of a sudden understand the key issue. There's a problem. And the problem for John's disciples is Jesus' growing popularity. Just think about it. John's disciples have a problem. And the problem is that man, the one that you talk to over there, they can't even say his name. The one you testified, look, he's baptizing. And by the way, John, everyone, a little hyperbole here, everyone is going to him. So what's going on here? Well, John's disciples are threatened by Jesus' growing popularity. And their whole place and position alongside of John the Baptist, who has been the guy. The crowds have been coming to him from all around the country. They've been baptized by him. And now the disciples of John are saying, hey, we're noticing that the crowds are drifting. We're losing our position. We're losing our place. We're losing momentum. The mojo is shifting to this guy over there. And we want to know, John, what are you going to do about it? Because, you know, we hooked our wagon to you. And like, you've been the guy. And so you're still the guy, right? He's not greater than you, is he? I mean, is it okay that all these people are going to Jesus? Is Jesus greater? Now, they may not have used those words, but that was the implicit question. Is Jesus greater? I wonder what's your take when you think about the other leaders of world religions. Is Jesus on a par? Is he a little lower? Is he greater? This is the question Right here in John chapter 3, the back half, is Jesus greater? And is there anything that we're unwilling to give up that he, Jesus, would become greater? Like they weren't so sure they were willing to give up their position of popularity of being with the guy, John the Baptist, and seeing this other guy come into place. Is there there anything right now that we might be unwilling to give up to either follow Jesus or make him greater. Is Jesus greater? What's your take on Jesus? Jesus would ask his disciples later, who who do you think I am? There's all these different takes, he says, but who do you think I am? Is Jesus greater? Or is it just one of many? 
Well, in this next section, we wrestle with the question, why is Jesus greater? And this has to do with now the back half of this section. Look at verse 31. The one who comes from above, speaking of Jesus, is above all. The one who is from the earth, that would be like John the Baptist, belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all, repeated now a second time. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in His hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Well, John has said a lot of things about the greatness of Jesus. I'm talking about John now, the author of the gospel. Chapter 1, a lot of things. Chapter 3, more things. But here we see four unique claims that demonstrates Jesus' greatness, above and over all. So the first thing is that he is God. All right, he's God. Now, it doesn't say that. It says that he's from above, that he's from heaven. And and what we know is he's saying he's not an angel, he's not a messenger, because he opens his gospel with a clear declaration that Jesus is none other than God. Here it is. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's not confused. John understands that Jesus is from above. He's divine. He's deity. He is God. And in case there's any confusion here, that's the case that Jesus is making later on in chapter 10. Jesus says, I and the Father are one, are equal. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. Why? Because he just claimed to be God. That's blasphemy. Verse 36, why then do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said, I am God's son. And the answer is exactly. That's exactly why they've picked up their stones to kill him. Jesus claims to be God, God's son, one with the father. So think about the world religions, Judaism, that traces back to Abraham. Well, we know all about Abraham. We find out that he's from a place called Ur of the Chaldees, not from above, born sometime around 2,000 years before Christ. Buddhism, there's this guy named Buddha who was born in Lumbini, Nepal, 563 years before Christ. There's Confucian, Confucius, born in Shandong Province, China, 551 B.C. Muhammad, born in Mecca, 570 A.D., Taoism, Hinduism, no idea of their founder or the founding date. These guys come from here. We go, well, didn't Jesus come from here? Wasn't he born in Bethlehem? Yeah, that's when he took on human form. That's when the word became flesh, John 1, verse 14, and lived among us. But he's always been 
He has always been. In fact, he would say in chapter 8, verse 58, before Abraham was born, I am. Speaking about the eternal qualities of God. Going back to Exodus 3, when God reveals himself to Moses. Christ eternally existed from above. He's God. And he's not only from above, but the second unique claim is he's above all. Look at this. The one who's from above, from heaven, is above all, and he rules supreme over all. It's mentioned a couple of times, above all. It's also that God has given and placed everything in his hands. This is, this is who Jesus is, unique. In, in Philippians chapter 2, we read this. Verse 9, therefore God exalted him, Christ, to the highest place, above all, the highest place, and gave him the name that is above every name, above all, right? Then at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The one who is from above is above all, repeated twice in verse 31. He's over all people. He's over all power and authority. He's over all things. In chapter 13, verse 3, Jesus says, Jesus knew, that, or John says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. All things, all people, all places, even death, sin, the devil, our past, our present. He reigns supreme, rules supreme, is sovereignly in control of all things. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. And he's given that authority over all the Father has to Jesus, who is above all. So the implication then is, if Jesus is above all, then his relationship, my relationship to Jesus is that, that he's over every area of my life, right? Is that making sense? He's to be above all. Above all. You think about your phone. I thought I had my phone, but I guess I don't have my phone. But, you know, you go to your phone, you got your apps. He's above all those categories, your calendar, your bank, your little my chart. He's above all your, you know, your Instagram relationships and your Facebook posts. And he's above all, everything, every area of our life. He's over it all. And the question is, have we submitted it all to his loving leadership? There's a third unique claim. He received the Holy Spirit without limit from God. That's what he's saying in verse 34. What's unique here is this without limit. Because in the Old Testament, there would be prophets and special leaders like the very first one, Bezalel and Aholilab, the guys who are the artisans to design the tabernacle, who are gifted with the Holy Spirit at a time for a purpose and a cause and a mission. But Jesus has the Spirit without limit. And because of that, he can give it without limit, like he offered to Nicodemus in chapter 3, that he might be born again of the Spirit. That's why Jesus says to his disciples, hey, you just wait here in Jerusalem. It's better that I go, chapter 1, verse 5, so that you can receive 
the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, the one who gives life, new life, unique about Christ, without limit, the Spirit on him. We know that the Spirit fell on him at his baptism. Luke 3 talks about that. We know that he had the fullness of the Spirit when he went out in the wilderness where he was tempted for 40 days. We know that the Spirit of the Lord was on him when he talked about his ministry to the poor and the imprisoned and the oppressed, quoting from Isaiah's scriptures. He received the Holy Spirit without limit. And the fourth and final thing uniquely here is he's uniquely loved as God's son by God the Father. Uniquely loved as God's son by the Father. So these are the unique claims that John's making to tell us that he's greater. Is he greater? John's saying yes. Why is he greater? Well, because he's from above and he's over all. He has the fullness of the Spirit. He has the love of the Father. And he alone can give new life. So then why would we ask that last question? How does Jesus become greater? Because John's just answered the question. He's greater. There's nobody like him. He's the eternal son of God who created all things. Nobody like him. Why in the world would he ask the question, how does Jesus become greater? If he's the greatest. It's because this is the very thing that John the Baptist concluded when he helped his disciples understand that of course it's right that they go to Jesus. Of course there's no problem. And, and it goes to verse 30 where he says, he, Jesus, must become greater and I must become less. So what does that look like? What does that look like in our lives? For Jesus to grow to become greater and greater and for myself, ourselves, to grow less and less. And why would we do that? Look at verse 27. To this John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. Look, I didn't get the calling or the gifts to be the son of God and to be the savior of the world. I didn't get those gifts. You yourselves, verse 28, can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I'm set ahead of him. I'm the forerunner. I'm the guy Isaiah talked about in chapter 40 to go and prepare the way for the Lord to get people ready to meet the Savior. Verse 29, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. I'm not the bridegroom. I'm not the bride. I'm the best man. I'm the friend of the bridegroom. And when I hear his voice, Christ's voice, I rejoice. That joy is mine and it's now complete. He must become greater and I must become less. So because Jesus is greater, he must become greater in our lives. What does that look like? Well, we go to John the Baptist to figure out, well, what might that look like? The first thing we notice about John the Baptist is that he remembered who he was and who he wasn't. We remember who we are and who we aren't. He goes, look, you guys may be confused. I'm not confused. I'm not the guy. I'm the guy who's to get people ready for the guy. 
I'm the forerunner. I'm the guy who prepares the way so people's hearts are ready to meet the promised Savior. I'm not the Messiah. I, I'm, the, I'm the front runner. I, I'm the front man to get people ready. He knew who he was. He knew who he wasn't. Reminds me of a story that I heard at a men's breakfast over at College Church where we used to serve in Wheaton, Illinois. And uh, we invited in the place kicker for the Chicago Bears. His name is Bob Thomas. He later became an Illinois Supreme Court justice. But he was the place kicker. He told the story at this breakfast about this time where he won the game. He kicked the final field goal in the final seconds of the game to win the game. He's mounted up on their shoulders. And it's just this great moment in his professional career. And so after the victory, you know, the team's going out to dinner. They're celebrating. And he's feeling great because he was the hero. He was the guy. But he starts to become a little irritated because he doesn't have any butter for his dinner roll. And he loves to lather it with a little butter. I get that. But he kept asking, and he never got the butter. And like he's going two, three times asking. Finally, he kind of loses it under control and says, um, I don't know if you know who I am, but I'm, I'm Bob Thomas. I'm the kicker for the Chicago Bears. I won today's game, thinking that was going to bring him like bowls of butter. To which she quickly responded, I don't know if you know who I am. I'm the lady who's in charge of the butter. And uh, it's really busy here. I know you need some butter, and we'll get it to you as quick as we can. That's great. The Bible says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And the best, so you don't ever, don't ever pray, God, humble me. Don't do that prayer. Don't pray that prayer. You humble yourself, the Bible says. How do we do that? Well, here's how we do it. We live in the shadow of the cross. Because when I'm living in the shadow of the cross, and I see that shadow every place that I go, I'm reminded that I'm a sinner who needed saving. And at the same time, I'm, rem I'm reminded that I'm an object of God's affection. I see myself for who I truly am in God's sight. Jesus is greater, and because of that, he must become greater in our lives. How? By understanding who we are and who we aren't. There's a second way. We see this from John, to be his friend. Remember, he says, I'm the friend of the bridegroom, Jesus being the bridegroom. We're to be his friend, Jesus' friend, finding our joy in connecting our friends, your friends, to Jesus Christ. That was the goal of the friend of the best man who had like three roles, this friend of the bridegroom. He was the best man. He was like the wedding coordinator and he was the MC. And in addition to that, his sole responsibility was to make sure that this wedding happened, that this bridegroom married this woman, this bride. And when he heard his voice and he knew he was here, here on this earth, to marry a people for himself. So this is a, a metaphor that the Bible uses throughout Old Testament, New Testament, of God's intimate love for us, that he would call us his bride. And John's saying, my great joy, the source of my joy is to see people coming into a right relationship with Christ, coming into that intimate relationship. There's a third way. And it's very clear in verse 36, and it's by placing your faith, 
your trust, your reliance in him, on him, all of it, however strong your faith is. The issue is the object of your faith, not on me and on Jesus, not on this religion and on Jesus plus anything equals nothing. It's all on him, placing your faith in him. And there's only two options we have. Look down at verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Well, why would God's wrath remain on them? Because the Bible is clear. Romans 3.23, all of us have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. 6.23 of Romans, the wages, the results then of our rebellion against God is death. Eternal separation from God. Frederick Beekner once said, the judge will be Christ. In other words, the one who judges us most finally will be the one who loves us most fully. So that the greatest thing that we can do, if we go to the next slide, the greatest thing that we can do for God is believe in the son he loves. And the worst thing that we can do is reject the son he loves. How do you make Jesus great? Well, you place your faith in Christ and all of your life in his hands and you love him as you live for him. So why would someone reject the offer that Christ gives? Eternal life, forgiveness, an abundance of life and fullness today in the midst of a broken, twisted world and then the promise of a perfect life forever with God in the new heaven on earth. Why would someone not receive that, not move towards that? Is it that we would doubt the warning of remaining under God's judgment? Is it that we would doubt the diagnosis that I'm not really that bad? Or doubt the realities of a heaven, of a hell, of a life beyond this life? In a penetrating article entitled Conceit and Contagion, How the Virus, the Coronavirus, Shocked Europe. Italian journalist Matteo Ferriese makes an interesting argument that the fundamental failure in Italy was not a lack of testing or political action, but a social and collective failure of the Italian People people did not take the coronavirus seriously enough to even slightly adapt to the possibility of a terrible outcome. So he said, I and many other Italians just did not see the need to change our routines for a threat we could not see. Even though we'd accumulated a lot of information on the virus, he said, we lacked what he might call moral knowledge. He knew about the virus, but the issue was not affecting his actions. That's just where we live right now. And the scriptures come to us, and it tells us about a greater virus. And unlike anything that we've been told, we're waiting for it. The Bible tells us about the cure. That Jesus took 
all of the virus of our sin and rebellion, the whole world, past, present, future, on himself so that we be freed from death, moving to life. So, how does Jesus become greater? Well, remember who we are. Remember who we're not. We're to be his friend, finding our source of joy in seeing Jesus and our friends come connected into a relationship by God's grace through faith. How does Jesus become greater in our life? By trusting in him and growing every day to trust him and relinquish control of every nook and cranny of our lives to him. And finally, by being intentional. I love verse 30, how John just says, look, this is, I just told you, you guys are confused. I'm not confused. You guys, you know, you wanted to hang on to what we've had. I don't want to hang on to it. I want less of that. And I want to make Jesus greater. I love his intentionality. He, Jesus, must become greater. When's the last time I said that? When's the last time you said that? When's the last time that we said that, church? That Jesus, not anything else, must become greater. In one of John's little letters, 3 John, in the ninth verse, he talks about a guy named Diotrephes, or Diotrephes, who he said loves to be first. That's the human condition. That's our natural love, is to love ourselves first. And we get duped into thinking, well, well yeah, I got to love myself first if I'm going to love anybody. No, we got to love God first. And that opens the floodgate of loving everybody, including even an enemy. So is Jesus above all in my life? Is he greater? Have you relinquished, surrendered every area of your life to Christ above all rule? Have you done that? And what's it look like for you to become less right now? What is it that you don't want to give up? For the disciples, it was their popularity. It was their position, their place in society. And all that went with being next to the guy at that time, John the Baptist. What's it look like for Jesus to become greater in your schedule when you open up your day timer? Do you still do that? Or is it on your outlook now? I hope so. What's it look like for Jesus to become greater as it relates to our time spent? What does it look like for Jesus to become greater relative to our finances, our investments, our retirement? What does it look like for Jesus to become greater at our workplace, in our marriage, in our family, in our neighborhood? Oh, can you imagine a church committed to he must become greater? God help us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just declare it. You are great and you are greater. Become greater in our lives in our homes, in our marriages, in our families, in our workplace, in our neighborhoods, in our community, in this, your church. We know, Lord, that your kindness brings a turning, a change in people's hearts. And so we pray for your kindness to do that, 
that people would gladly submit their lives into your loving, strong, eternal, powerful hands that are nail-pierced as an expression of your victory over death, of your payment for our sin, and of your outstretched arms of love. May we know that we're not only fully known and finally judged, but that we are fully, perfectly loved, loved by you. And may we live in such a way that underscores that, Lord, as you send us out this week in all the different places. We pray for your great name and fame to grow in our hearts, our church, our lives, our city. All for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.